Hey there, Never Showing listeners, John here. You know, I thought I would change things up this episode. Sometimes the story behind making films can be just as interesting as the films themselves. This is the stuff that as audience members, we don't get to see. I always found these types of stories fascinating. So I thought you and I could go on a little solo adventure together. Don't worry, this isn't a permanent change. I promise you those other two guys will be back to torment both you and me. But for now, I thought we could look at one of my favorite films, Back to the Future. So sit back, continue walking, running, driving, tubbing, whatever you're doing while you listen to podcasts. Because if my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 seconds, you're going to hear some serious shit. Back to the Future, it's a treasure trove of popular culture. It spinned off two successful sequels, animated series and video games. It spent 11 weeks as number one in the box office. Grossed $389 worldwide. And although that's not impressive by today's standards, that was 1985 money. Back then, 10 bucks could get you a Big Mac movie ticket, a Rubik's Cube, and you'd have enough change to buy about 10 shares in a little company called Apple. Nominated for four Academy Awards, the film also had critical success. It also launched Family Ties television star Michael J. Fox and made him a household name. Praise even travelled all the way up to the presidential office, with Ronald Reagan quoting this iconic line. Where we're going, we don't need roads. However, there is an alternative timeline to these events. A timeline where Michael J. Fox film accomplishments for 1985 would have only been a trashy film called Teen Wolf. A quickly forgotten picture only made famous by a recent TV remake and the fact a random dude decided to flash his junk in the closing scene. Yes, it's real. Check it out on YouTube. In this parallel reality, it was dramatic actor Eric Stoltz who would appear as the time-traveling teen. Yes, movie star of classics such as Anaconda, The Fly 2, and Naked in New York. So what happened to this quantum universe? Let us go back to November 1984, where principal photography has just begun. And cut, calls Robert Zemeckis. All right, Marty, let's do it again. Crew members begin to reset in preparation for another take. Robert Zemeckis, a young and upcoming director coming off the back of Romancing the Stone, a successful adventure comedy starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Back to the Future was his largest budget film to date, and writing partner Bob Gale and Zemeckis had written the leading man with comic timing in mind. Although, on a technical level, there was nothing wrong with the scene, Robert felt there was something missing. So once again, the director tried to massage a comedic performance out of Eric Stoltz, one that matched his original vision for the character. I just don't get it, says Eric. Why would I fall down when I'm putting my pants on? Robert respected Eric as an actor. Eric was method acting, and would only be referred to as Marty on set. Eric devoted himself to the Adler technique. He enveloped a character. The thoughts, the feelings. He would dissect a script and look for subtext. 
It was a skill that would earn him high praise for his work on the movie Mask. Mask had yet to be released, but studio heads and the Back to the Future producers carefully watched the test screenings. They saw great potential in Eric and pitched him to audition for the role of Marty McFly. In the process to cast Marty McFly, we saw names like Charlie, Tiger Blood, Sheen, Johnny, I Need More Makeup, Depp, and Family Ties star Michael J. Fox. While Michael J. Fox was the first choice, he was unable to commit to the movie due to scheduling issues. Actor C. Thomas Howe was the crowd favourite amongst the crew. However, anticipating the success of the movie Mask, the producers couldn't pass up on an opportunity to cast an actor who was about to level up in star power. Under the praise and confidence of the studio, Eric Stoltz was cast as the time-travelling teen. No one could fault Eric's commitment to the role, though. He took his work very seriously and did everything he could to get into character. He knew his lines and hit his marks. Eric would continuously visit with Paul Hansen, a guitar instructor, to tune up his skills for the Johnny B. Good scene that occurred towards the end of the film. But something just wasn't right, and there was a little voice inside Robert's head. A doubt. A doubt that the picture wasn't working the way he envisioned. The end of the year was fast approaching. Robert asked his two editors to cut together the last five weeks of footage into a rough cut. The three men sat in silence and watched frame by frame. Through his thick eyeglasses, Robert analysed every second as Eric Stoltz walked across the 1950s Hill Valley Times Square. His suspicions had been confirmed. Movies are like little pieces at a time. Little moments that have to be put together. And sometimes you can't get a sense of how the performance is going until you see some of the performances put together. Neil Canton, producer of Back to the Future. Okay, so the problem was obvious. Robert needed to recast and reshoot. And this was 1984. There was no CGI moustache removal trickery. Every single frame with Eric in it needed to be reshot. But before Robert could even think about that, there was a whole other process he needed to go through. Not only did he need to convince the film's producers, but also the executive producer as well. A little-known Hollywood player and filmmaker by the name of Steven Spielberg. He'd also need to get the studio executives on board, as well as push back the release date. He'd also need to find a new leading man, and on top of everything, he'd also have to jack up the price of the film's budget. I don't know, a very subtle amount of about $3 million. You know, with inflation, that's about seven and a half million bucks. Keeping in mind, Robert was only 33 years old, and he didn't quite have the commanding authority that a much more older or accomplished director may have. But armed with his brass and a rough cut of the film, Robert began the process. First stop was Bob Gale and Neil Canton, the film's producers. After reviewing the footage, Steven Spielberg was the next stop, who, after viewing, agreed that Eric needed to be replaced. As support grew for Robert's cause, 
Spielberg formulated a plan to move forward. Production couldn't stop. If it did, the studio would smell blood in the water, and there'd be a chance the film would come to a crashing halt. Stephen and Robert would now have to convince the studio head of Universal, Sidney Scheinberg. But Stephen first wanted to line up a replacement. Leveraging his relationship with Gary David Goldberg at Family Ties, an agreement was met that would allow Michael J. Fox to work on the film whilst filming Family Ties. It was a taxing work schedule. Michael J. Fox would work on Family Ties during the day and then film Back to the Future during the evenings and weekends. It was a gruelling schedule, but Michael was ecstatic to work on the picture. With a plan in place, the rough cut was presented to Scheinberg, who had originally championed Stoltz for the part. However, it only took one minute to convince Scheinberg to recast, who stated, If you guys feel the way you do, make the change. Side note, I have no idea how Scheinberg sounds, and I really hope I didn't insult him with that really cheesy, over-the-top, executive producer-esque in impersonation sounding thing. Moving on. Robert now had the tick of approval from producers and the studio. He had lined up a new Marty McFly. The last step, and in no way the easiest, Robert now had to tell his cast, crew, and leading man. You're giving me it's the not you, it's me routine? I invented it's not you, it's me. Nobody tells me it's them, not me. If anybody, it's me. George Costanza. Breaking up is hard. Eric was a fine actor, but the wheels were in motion and it was time to part ways. The crew was suspicious of a change. Little incidents that just didn't seem quite right. Robert wouldn't shoot a reverse angle or he would leave sets up even though scenes were finished. The final scene that Eric would traverse, nay, navigate, was on January 10th at around 5.30pm. The location was the fictional Twin Pines Mall. Stepping in front of the camera for the very last time as Marty McFly, Eric Stoltz fed his lines to co-star Christopher Lloyd. Production manager Dennis Jones would fill out reports at the end of every day. Jones would use a coding system to determine whether or not an actor or actress would be required for another shoot day. For Stoltz that day, Jones wrote down a big capital F. Jones states it represented the word finished. But as you could imagine, you could interpret a few other more colourful words. It was decided earlier that the principal cast were the first to be informed. Bob Gale spoke with Crispin Glover and Thomas F. Wilson, while Neil Canton spoke with Leah Thompson and Christopher Lloyd. Robert Zemeckis broke the news to Eric directly. What was discussed between the two still remains between them. However, Zemeckis reported that Eric took it hard. The formal announcement was made to the rest of the cast and crew, around lunchtime, which was at 10.30pm, so it was more like dinner time, but the entire production was present, including Spielberg. The mood was serious. With the big boss present, everyone was expecting some fecal matter to hit the fan. Zemeckis, armed with a megaphone, spoke to the unsettled crowd. We have an announcement to make. It's probably going to be shocking. Kind of good news, bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. We're going to have to reshoot most of the movie because we're changing the cast. We're going to get a new Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox. The crowd seemed unfazed. Someone actually shouted, Well, that's certainly not the bad news. Okay, well, 
I guess that's good news. The other good news is that we're going to continue on. So I guess it's good news and good news. Eric's name remained on the production call sheet the next day. However, there was no call time or code letters. The whiteout pen was mightier than the sword. When production began next week, with two strokes, Stoltz was now completely removed from production. Removing Stoltz as the lead brought forth some collateral damage, not only to the film's production schedule, but also to the cast. Melora Harden was cast as Jennifer Parker, Marty's girlfriend. Harden, who you may know as Jan from the hit TV show The Office, had aced the audition. While not completely new to the industry, she had predominantly appeared in television. Having just turned 18, this was her breakout moment. She also happened to be a couple of inches taller than Michael J. Fox. It seems kind of shallow. Decided that having Harding tower over Michael J. Fox just wasn't a good look. Armed with a bouquet of flowers, the two bobs broke it to her over a conference call. Letting her go was hard. Just because she was a few inches taller, it made it a very tough conversation. Bob Gale and Harding remained friends, and they did work together in the future. Tuesday the 15th, Michael J. Fox arrived on set. The Twin Pines Mall was lit up. The cameras were set. After engaging with some small talk, Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd took to their marks. Second assistant director cameraman Steve Tate snapped the clapperboard and Robert called, Action! Michael J. Fox turns to face the camera and asks Christopher Lloyd that now famous question. Wait, Doc, you're telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? As a weight was lifted off the entire production team, Canton, Gale, and Zemeckis all breathed a sigh of relief. We might just actually pull this thing off. Due to a marathon effort of Fox and the production team, the film was released on July 3rd, 1985. Both to critical and commercial success. It brought forth two sequels to complete a trilogy. A trilogy that's still loved today. But what about Stoltz? When asked about working on the film, Stoltz has been quoted to say, it felt like a very long winter. Eric had no problems picking up work though. After the success of Mask, he went on to star in other noteworthy films, Memphis Belle, Pulp Fiction, and Little Women, just to name a few. There's only about a handful of production stills and about a minute of film released featuring Stoltz's performance. Although the original cut that Zemeckis and his editors worked on is out there somewhere, it'll probably remain under lock and key. It does carry an essence of mystery, fans' curiosity of what could have been. Maybe one day we'll see a super-duper deluxe special edition, but with Bob Gale and Zemeckis being so protective of their franchise and intellectual property, I think it's highly unlikely. If you're like me and love the Back to the Future films, and you're a little bit hungry for more tales behind the lens, then I really suggest you read the book We Don't Need Roads by Cassian Gaines. It was a fantastic reference for this episode. It's filled with great stories and insights from the cast and crew. It's a great read. I can't recommend it enough. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm John from the Never Showing Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to share your company and we'll speak again soon. <laughs>